City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.rivercitychicago.com. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Before we jump in, I'm going to do one other quick introduction. Um, as the summer comes to a close, we're going to do a couple staff transitions. Shereen Ahmed Ali, who's been leading Kid City wonderfully for the last three years, He's got many, many gifts, and we're going to find some other ways to use this in the church. And so we're going to have somebody new coming in on the Kid City side. So I want to introduce her. Just come on up. You don't have to say anything, but this is Jessica Gentry. I want you to put a name to the face. She's been working with our junior hires and been an active part of the body for quite a while here. just want to put a name to the face. So um, we're thankful for that, and um, we'll start that in the new year. So I'm glad for that. One other thing, for those of you who come to Bible study, or this might be a plug, if you want to come to Bible study, we're doing um, our first Spanish lesson this Wednesday before Bible study. Maria, where did did your mom disappear to? She went out there, she pulled the Don Cuss, huh, and ran out during the, uh, uh, so Maria is going to at least give me a Spanish lesson, but anybody else who wants to join, we're going to do that at 6.30. So if you're ready to start learning Spanish, come at 6.30 to 7 before Bible study. Sound good? All right. Oh, that was very enthusiastic. Let's see if we can keep that into the sermon time as well, and not just for Spanish, but that's good. I'm glad. We've been doing a series on the Psalms this summer, and um, uh, I'm going to make my way to Psalm 11, but on the way there, I'm going to tell some stories about a figure that's played a big part in my life, Dr. John Perkins. Um, That'll be a name that's familiar to a lot of you. That's a name that maybe is brand new to others. Um, Dr. Perkins was born in Mississippi in 1930. So he's approaching his 90th birthday here, still going strong. And um, uh, when, when he became a Christian, um, he really very quickly identified, even as a young man, with the words of Jesus who said, you know, I've come to call all children to myself. But he, you know, Jesus regularly says, I've come to preach good news to the poor. Right? And it's easy to spiritualize that, and certainly there's a spiritual element to that. We are all poor in spirit, and the gospel is the riches of God that comes to us. There's no question. But it also was meant to have permanent and eternal and everyday realities in the social world, too. And so Dr. Perkins, from very early on, was um, drawn to God's heart for the poor. And as the son of sharecroppers and in a very poor part of Mississippi, um, he was very drawn to trying to find in the Spirit of God meaningful ways to respond to poverty. And so um, he is now famously, he's well-known, he started what is now called the Christian Community Development Movement. Um, as an aside, that's an annual conference, CCDA, that... We try to get people to go whenever we can, but I know it's hard. It's usually not in Chicago, and it costs money if to take off work. But this year, it's in Chicago, so if you want to put it down on your dates, it would really be great if we could have tons of River City people there. It's the Thursday, Friday, November 1st, November 2nd, so I'll be here at the McCormick Place this year. So he started this movement, but um, it was in Mendenhall, Mississippi first, Jackson, Mississippi second, just trying to work with the folks in the community to know, address some of the multi-generational systemic poverty that was there. And I've been to Jackson, I think, four times now. It really is incredible. There's, I mean, when you go around Jackson, there's the Dr. Perkins Medical Clinic, and there's the Dr. Perkins Youth Center, and there's the Dr. Perkins Legal Center, and there's the Dr. Perkins um, Job Training Center, and there's all these homes that are affordable housing. And the community development stuff they did is really incredible over the years and the decades. A big part of the story where it starts to intersect with my own 
um, you know, that was in the days, you know, he's in his 20s, what, in the 50s. So it was in the days when it was still, the racial hostility was still very much front and center and, you know, the lynchings and Jim Crow and the different things that are happening. So Dr. Perkins, because of the work he was doing, it's not an overstatement. He was literally, his life was threatened literally on a daily basis. And so as a testament to how beloved he was in Jackson, there was a volunteer army essentially that formed, that protected his household 24-7. Every single day, day and night, they would go on shifts to make sure nothing happened to Dr. Perkins or his family. Um, But Perkins was hated by the sheriff. The sheriff had this vendetta against him. And so the sheriff set up a illegal operation, but they, they sent some fake news, or it's the first phrase that comes to my mind, but they sent some, uh, a false report that one of Dr. Perkins' friends was in trouble outside of the city limits, so Dr. Perkins went, being a good friend, only to discover that they, it was a setup so that they could catch him outside of the county line, so the police captured him, took him into the, the jail there, and then for 12 hours straight, without, um, without a break, tortured him all night long, and um, uh, the, the worst of which, there was one point where he thought he was going to die. They were, t- they were alternating between forks and knives, sticking them in his nose, um, seeing how far they get up there. It actually did brain damage to him for a while. And then um, when that was done, thought he could take any more. They put him on a floor and just were kicking him and punching him mercilessly. And he thought for sure he was going to die then. And these are the kind of stories where it makes me love Jesus so much uh, and where it makes me understand why it's terrifying to follow Jesus because it'll take you to places you don't always want to go. Dr. Perkins, as he was laying on the ground being beaten and punched by these guys, had a what he would call a revelation from Jesus. Jesus came to him in the person in that moment, and Jesus, Dr. Perkins, as he thought he was dying on the, on the cement floor being kicked, real time being kicked, he felt Jesus say, look around at how deep hatred goes. Look at how deep racism goes. He said, not only is this thing called racism have you on the ground being kicked and beaten, but look into the faces of these people who are kicking you right now. And Perkins had the presence of mind to look into the faces of those who were beating him in that moment. And he heard Jesus say to him, I want you to go and proclaim the gospel of good news to these people when you come out of here. He said, I want you to preach it to the oppressor and the oppressed. I want you to teach it to the victim and the victimizer. And as he was being beaten on the ground, he felt his commissioning from Jesus, not only to do Christian community development in Jackson, Mississippi, but to become a missionary, particularly to the white evangelical church. Because this is where he'd become a Christian, in the white evangelical church, where he learned about high view of Scripture and love of Scripture, and yet where racism so often was tolerated and even perpetuated. And so he began to kind of carry this dual call, doing Christian community development in his city, in his neighborhood, but then also becoming a missionary to white folks and others who would listen, but especially in these white spaces. And he's done that now, I don't know, five five decades now he's been doing that. And uh, oftentimes discredited even his own community because he is perceived as loving white people so much, trying to help them get free from the racism that they're also entangled with. So I I say all that because I never knew of his name, but I was working at the time at Willow Creek Community Church, which... If you know anything about Will, they're going through hell's high waters right now, and I'm sorry for that and prayerful for them. But back in the day when I was there, they were very famous for kind of teaching best practices around leadership in the church world, and they would do annual leadership summits. And um, coming on to one of these big leadership conferences that Willow would do, they invited Dr. Perkins to be the Wednesday night speaker at the midweek service, which I think was really cool that they did that. So it was the first time I ever heard him, so I'm 24, maybe, something like that, sitting in here. So Dr. Perkins gets up. He's, this is 20 years ago, so he's approaching 70 already even then. Um, and he gets up, and he says, I want to talk about leadership today. He says, I want to ask, what is true leadership from a biblical perspective? 
how do you know if a leader really made an impact in a society? Now, I'm really curious to hear this because we talk about this stuff at Will Creek all the time, right? And so he starts throwing these, what really in that context were bombs. He says, does it make a church leader effective if they got a big church? Is that what makes a good leader? He said, does it make a church leader effective if they have a bunch of staff on church? He said, does it make you know, a church leader effective if they've got a huge budget that everybody goes, wow, that's amazing. He goes, now, there's, there's nothing in the Bible about that associated with leadership. And I'm getting dragged with this because those are the kinds of things people probably would have picked up. I don't, nobody would have said that, but those are the kinds of things, even today in church world, that kind of is out there, right? He said, in the Bible, there's two things that you see that make a great leader. He said, first and most importantly, and this was very, very life-changing for me, he said, great leaders in the Bible are the ones who seek the face of God and hear the voice of suffering in the world that seek the face of God and hear the voice of suffering in the world. And then kind of true black preacher style, he started riffing on um, different, you know, different leaders in the Bible that left an imprint. He said, when is it that Moses became great, if we want to say that? When is it that Moses became great? It's when he heard the voice of God say, my people are suffering, and you are to join me in that. He said, when did Esther become great? When she worked up the courage to say, my people are facing genocide, and I must confront the king. When did Joseph become great? When the famine risked killing the whole land and he was able to feed the hungry, including his own brothers within that. And he went on and on and on. He's like, this is what true leadership does. True leadership hears the cries of suffering. Then he had a second thing talking about how they raise up. It's never about themselves. They raise up other leaders, and great leaders are known by the leaders that they surround themselves with and that who, who do the work. And I had no idea at that time that I was going to eventually have a call to plant a church in my life. But that forever changed the way I thought about leadership, that it would be tied from that point forward to believing that God was a God of justice for the poor and that God's heart cried for suffering in society. And so one more story. So this is four or five years go on from this point. So when we're getting ready to plant River City, a team of us, you know, we're still trying to sort out what it's going to look like. So a team of us decide to take a road trip and go to Jackson, Mississippi to see Dr. Perkins. And so it was a real kind of amazing trip. Priya was on that with me um, and a couple other who were part of River City for a while but have since moved. And so um, back then, Dr. Perkins was very accessible. So what we do, you'd go out for five days, and he would do a morning devotional with you and then send you off, and you'd work with one of the ministries there in Jackson. And so the final Bible study he did is one that, shaped me forever, and I think you'll feel it very strongly on the imprints of what River City is today. Um, he went to Psalm 11. He went to Psalm 11 for his final Bible study, and so that's what I want us to read here together. So if you've got your Bibles or however you want to read it, uh, if you want to open to Psalm 11, let's stand together. It'll be on the screen as well. This is the Psalm he took us to, a Psalm that is very precious and beloved to me. All right, this is King David again. We've heard a lot of Psalms this summer from King David. King David says this, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. 
He loves justice. The upright will see his face. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So verse 3 of Psalm 11 is what Dr. Perkins centered in on in our final Bible study with him. And I've never forgotten this. He said, at the heart of this psalm is a question from David. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And he said, and I think this is right on. I've thought about this so many times. He said, here's a couple of questions. When, when you're planting a church, when you're in church work at all, th- th- this same set of questions should be asked by everybody in any given day. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can, what should the righteous do? And so he encouraged us first to do deep critical thinking. And before even asking, what can we do? He said, we have got to be clear on in our society at any given time, what is it actually that is destroying the foundations? All right, before you can say, what should the righteous do? You have to first be clear, what is even destroying the foundations in the first place? And so I'm giving you a few, a few Perkins gems today, right? We already talked about kind of what true leadership is being tied to the suffering. This is the second Perkins gem I would pass on that I think is so helpful with everyday life of following Jesus, is, is, is critically thinking in the day and age we live, what is it that's destroying the foundations? What is destroying the foundations? Because it just makes sense then. That's what the church should be about, right? Whatever is destroying the foundation should be confronted by the church, and a different kind of foundation would be established. And I couldn't improve upon the two things he was saying. This is what he gave his life to, and it's what River City has been very much built around as well. You know, the heart of his ministry, both when he does community development locally and when he talks to the broader church, is built around this word reconciliation. And that's a theological word that goes beyond race. But if you're going to ask what is destroying the foundations of our society, it is hard to come up with something that has got a more destructive, corrosive element on the foundations of our society than this system of race that we have. All right, now, this sermon is not about is not designed to try to talk about why, because I want to get to the other ones. I want to finish where David finishes. But I think it's important that we regularly come back in here and just kind of biblically connect to this idea of race so you all understand why this isn't some just random social issue we chose at River City. Um, uh, The shorthand that we should always be able to hang on to with race, race is different than the God-given nationality that you were born into. Right? Race is different than the ethnicity that you are. Those are gifts from God. I've been reflecting on Acts 17.26. When the Apostle Paul preaches at Mars Hill, he says, this is really a cool idea to think about, isn't it? To the, to the people of Mars Hill, when they're trying to understand the nature of God, um, Paul says, every nationality, every nation of origin, every ethnic group comes first from Jesus' very self. That nationality is an actual literal reflection of Jesus and that Jesus himself appointed where and when we would all live as part of our national heritage, part of our ethnicity. That's kind of a fascinating idea, isn't it? That's very different than what race is. Race is the devil's work in this society built by human beings that took perceived physical differences, perceived you know, ethnic differences, and assigned them not into equal categories. That would be potentially problematic. That's not what race did. Race said there's a hierarchy of human value. We must always understand why that is so serious. It said that there's, there's fully human and there's subhuman and that everybody falls somewhere in between. And the reason this is not just a social issue, it's a spiritual issue, this is what we just have to always come back to, is because what God cares most about in the Bible is human beings. That is the climax of God's creation. Everything gives, everything's reflective of God's glory, but human beings... This was talked about during worship. We got to remember, human beings. Genesis one, the language is so beautiful and poetic. It says human beings carry the 
image of God inside of us. The very image of God is inside of us. And then, similar but slightly different, we're made in the likeness of God. Which, just as an aside, the image is something that's just given to you as a gift. It can never be taken away. We inherently reflect God. The likeness is something we grow into. Right? You become like that which you love over time. And through disciplines and through transformation and through kind of a process of Holy Spirit-led growth. Human beings carry the imago Dei, the image of God, and we are made in the likeness of God. So therefore, it is so important. This is so basic, but it's so lost in the church at large. Therefore, anything that assaults the image of God is something that burns brightly in God's heart. Right? Anything that attacks the integrity and the humanity of another person is something that angers God. And race is not the only thing that attacks the humanity, but I think you can make a very compelling case that there has never been anything, especially in American society, I don't want to talk about global right now, but if we just start with American, North American side, there has never been a consistent force attacking the humanity of God's children more than the system of race. There's never been even something close second. And when you take the other things that do attack the humanity, when you put race next to them, they triple or quadruple in terms of seriousness. Right? So you cannot love God and silently just go along without challenging race. It is one of the things that is destroying the foundations of our society. And if we can be like like real time in Chicago here for a minute, we're in a couple of weeks we're going to see it again. We're going to see we're going to watch the foundations burn again and I, that's what I'm predicting. You know, we're only a 2 weeks plus from the um, Jason Van Dyke trial. And Jason Van Dyke is the white police officer who shot and killed Laquan McDonald. You know, our city, there's a number of things that have happened. I mean, our city has a long history of racism, but there's certain things where it burns bright. And in recent memory, that's one of the times our city burned most brightly around racial division was when this happened. And then the tape was covered up by the prosecutor and by the mayor. And when it came out, and Van Dyke shot McDonald 16 times. Right? So the excessive force that came with that, the just deliberate kind of hateful way that that happened was just another, again, a sign of racial hatred, right? That trial's coming up in two weeks plus, and if our recent history is any guide, he's probably going to walk. He will probably get acquitted. I'm, I'm guessing he's probably going to get acquitted because we have no track record yet of our society holding people accountable for killing black people, and I think he's probably going to walk. And I think when he does, the city's going to go on fire in, in a couple weeks. And when it does, for too many parts of the church, it's going to be, whoa, where did all this come from? Right now, it's that this has been eating away at the foundations of our society for far too long. And I think Dr. Perkins is right. If, if we're going to be part of the rebuilding of foundations, we have to first ask, what is destroying the foundations? I'll just say a quick word on the second one. The other one that I think I agree with, poverty is the other one. If you would ask Dr. Perkins, what are the two things that are eating away at the foundations of our society, you'd say race and poverty. And again, I won't do, if you want deeper treatments on either of these, we did a whole series last year called Wide Awake, which was looking at race. Um, in the Act series, we did two on the nature of poverty. So I'm just doing quick kinds of things here. But it is, you know, it's fascinating that Jesus says he's come to preach good news to the poor, right? Um, it's fascinating that in the Mosaic law, the law that the Old Testament community was supposed to live off of, got one of the ordinances, the Old Testament law, God said, there should be no poor among you. One of the hallmarks of the early church, it said they, that, that those who had extra in possession shared it, and there was no poor among them. 
right? Poverty, and when you get to poverty, there's different kinds of poor, right? I'm talking about a specific kind. There's one kind of poor where you're broke, and I'm not trying to minimize that. Um, it stinks to be broke. But that's different than poverty, right? Broke, broke is when you genuinely don't have enough money to pay your bills, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Broke is when you don't have enough money to pay the bills, but if things go bad, you've got a support network that you can lean on. All right? That's real. That's poor. That's broke. But that's different than poverty. Poverty is this tide pool that is, tends to be multi-generational, that tends to have multiple systemic forces working at it, where it just feels impenetrable. It feels so hard to get out of it. And some of you know that all too well. And the Bible is fundamentally against that. It's part of the church's DNA to confront that. And so, anyway, much could be said on those. I, I want to wrap that part of it up. Um, we, we often use the language of Dr. Marion Wright Edelman here at River, River City saying the same thing that Dr. Perkins did. Talking, this is talking about the Psalm 11, talking about the foundations being destroyed. Dr. Edelman, who's the founder of the Children's Defense Fund and somebody who's influenced me tremendously, she says, she says if, you want to look for, if you want to look at transformational change in communities, start with children. That's always the place to start with because children are the most vulnerable in any society, right? They can't vote. They can't articulate in a powerful way, what they need. They can't stand up against oppressive forces because they're not strong enough yet. They're the most vulnerable society, right? The most vulnerable in society. And she says, the most dangerous place for the most vulnerable person to live is at the intersection of race and poverty. And we've used that language since early on that for River City, that's how we're responding to the Psalm 11 challenge. Where, where the foundation's being destroyed at the intersection of race and poverty. That's the most intense fight that's happening in our society and where we as a church want to be positioned to be present. All right, so uh, what is it that's destroying the foundations? That's, I don't think those are the only two, but I think those are two of the big ones. What are the righteous to do? This is just the last part. Um, I, this is one of my favorite verses in Psalm 11. So again, this is the context. David's reflecting on when the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? And if you don't, can you bring up, oh, hi, Sam, can you bring up uh, the, the, the slide again? Let, let's look at this, this final verse. Certainly, there's specifics of what are the righteous to do around race, around poverty, around other things where the foundations are being destroyed. But the deepest level is to be clear on how we look to God. This is how he finishes the psalm. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. And that verse right there develops kind of a circular pattern. And one, you know, when we're talking about complex issues, sometimes it's just so helpful to have something so simple, so straightforward to come back to. Psalm 11, verse 7, I think is one of those verses that shows the cycle of how we are supposed to experience transformation, how we are supposed to approach these things, right? So it's in the context of when the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? So David says the first thing we do is look to the only one who actually is right, to the only one where everything works the way it's supposed to work, the one who is love perfected, that we must look to the Lord, to the one who is righteous. And uh, I want to stay here for a second because this is why our first pillar of our church is not reconciliation, is not community development. Our first pillar is worship because um, this is not a human enterprise when we're talking about rebuilding the foundations. This isn't a different way to earn and achieve God's approval by showing God that we care about what's going on in society. That misses the bigger point. 
what our fundamental call and task is, is to come to know the Lord deeply and to be known by the Lord. Right? Pastor Aaron led us in that just ongoing time of just remembering who we are in God, trusting that's who God is, trusting it's who we are, trusting that even if we think we've done things to excommunicate ourselves from God's presence, that God still claims us, God still deems us worthy because of who God is, right? It is why it, it, it is so essential that we keep going deeper and deeper into our private spiritual encounters with God, why we go deeper and deeper into our collective encounters with God, because this is where all of our direction comes from. This is where all of our power comes from. This is where all of our sustaining efforts come from, is from knowing the Lord who is righteous, seeing and experiencing God firsthand for ourselves. David says when the the foundations are being destroyed, the first thing the righteous do is go back to the ones who made them righteous in the first place. They go to the Lord, for the Lord is righteous. And then he goes from there, and he says, For the Lord is righteous. God loves justice. Now, here's one of the most confusing things about being a a Christian in this day and age. In a whole lot of Bible-believing churches, not all of them, but in a whole lot of Bible-believing churches, when you say something as simple as the second part of Psalm 11, 7, when you say, God loves justice, you'll get called some weird names. You'll get called a socialist. I can't tell you how many times I'm called a socialist because what we talk about, what we talk about. I didn't, I had to actually look this one up after I got called it a phone time, but I get called a cultural Marxist. I didn't even know what that meant, but it's just kind of a synonym, I think, to being a socialist. There's this, and it's another one of these threads where we've talked about it here before. We don't have time to go deep into it. There is a division that happened in the church about 100 years ago where those who were pursuing social stuff got called liberal, social gospel, things like that. Those who were focusing more on the personal piety, personal walking with God, things got called conservative Christians. And this divide has widened over the years to the point where if you're a Bible-believing Christian who says God loves justice, you automatically get pushed in a different direction because this division goes so deep in the church. It is so basic, and yet it's not basic at all, Half the, half the Bible-believing churches you go to right now could not confidently say God loves justice, unless what you're talking about is that God loves justice for sinners and had to make a way for them to go to heaven, which I also believe, but completely gut it, you know, in terms of its full meaning of what it, what it is. And so you see what David's saying. He's saying, if we're going to look at the foundations being destroyed, if we're going to join in God's work, first we have to be deeply in tune with God, and then we come deeply in tune with the fact that God loves justice. And so it corrects both imbalances. From David's perspective, to say you love God and you don't love justice is heresy. How would you, how, that's who God is. To love God is to love justice. But to those who pursue justice and not care deeply about walking with God, David would say, that's also craziness, right? And I'm thankful for people who work for justice, wherever they'll work for it. But and this, this is so much what I feel like inside of River City. I'm trying to be the best kind of pastor shepherd I can be. Outside of River City, I feel like my primary task is that just being an evangelist. Because evangelism just means talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I feel like I'm evangelizing two different groups of people all the time. And I know you are too. I'm not trying to put myself on some kind of pedestal. And I'm needing to be evangelized all the time. But there's one group, people who say they love the Bible, but then they don't do anything around justice. 
And so I'm trying to evangelize that, evangelize that group and say, you know, I believe the same Bible you say you believe in. I just think I'm seeing a lot of things you're not seeing. And, like, let's talk about the kinds of things David talks about, like in Psalm 11. And then I'm spending a lot of time with secular justice folks who care deeply about a lot of stuff we care about, but they gave up on the church a long time ago. Right, and I'm trying to evangelize their saying, look, I think the efforts you're doing are really important, but we don't need to do just critical analysis of race. We need to do critical analysis of our own hearts. Right? I know for myself, the same stuff I'm trying to fight out there, I see it inside of my own heart. That same sickness we're trying to find the cure for, that sickness is inside of me. Heck, if, I, if, if I, they trust me enough to say, I'll say, like, if I'm being honest, a lot of, we all are trying to find a way to make up for the fact that we feel spiritually lost. We're all trying to kind of create some type of exterior package that makes us look acceptable. Justice is just one more version of that, right? You can be involved with stuff because you know you're a wreck inside. I'm like, that's not enough for me. I don't want to not do justice, but it's not enough for me to talk about the, the heart of justice that Jesus has without talking about the heart for personal transformation he has for me right? They go together. It's meant to be one leads to the other, the other leads back. And then he finishes with that last part. It's just this kind of circular way of looking at transformation. He says, for the Lord is righteous. God loves justice. The upright will see his face. See, I think in this context, when he talks about the upright, this is those who've already been forgiven by God. This is those who already know who they are in God. This is those who, as children of God, say, I know my Father loves justice, and I love justice, therefore, too. And then when you step into the world where the foundations are being destroyed, and where the evil one seems like he's winning more often than losing, then those who have already encountered God, have already sought justice, come back again to the heart of the Father and say, show me your face, because there ain't no way I'm going to make it another round if the Spirit of the living God does not renew me does not strengthen me, does not fill me with your presence. In fact, that word face, the upright will see his face. You know, the Hebrew word for face, the exact same is the Hebrew word for presence. So when it says the upright will see his face, that is just simply saying they look for the presence of God while doing this work. They get better and stronger and more skilled at sensing the presence of God. They've been able to hear that still small voice that says, you're my daughter, you're my son, whom I love. And I love them out there too. I love my children who are in distress. So like Moses who hears God say, the cries of the suffering of my people have reached my ears, have reached my heart. So God says to each one of us, the cries of suffering have reached my ears, have reached my heart, and I call my children to join in on I don't think this is for a certain kind of person, a certain kind of social location. I think Psalm 11 is one of those fundamental kind of passages. When the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? I mean, first, we ask what are destroying the foundations in the first place. And then second, we, we, we commit to a life of discipleship that follows this cycle, that we come to know God deeply, the one who is righteous. We turn from there and go out into the world to deal with injustice because God loves justice. And when we get knocked around, we come back and seek his presence and seek his face and sign up once again in the power of the Spirit. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Let's, let's, let's um, kind of prepare our hearts and minds. If you'd kind of bow heads and close eyes here as we ready our hearts.
we invoke now the things we've sung all day, the things we've reflected on all day, the things we've been sitting in, that you are a good father. That you love us, that you call us your own, that you forgive us. And we remember that you are a God of justice. You tell us to pray this way. You say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not in the afterlife, but here and now. On earth as it is in heaven. God, I've so come to see worship as this time of alignment where we remember who you are and what your kingdom is like. And we learn to see with more clarity. We learn to look around and see a world that's on fire, that's out of line with your kingdom, out of line with your heart. And honestly, we look inside of our own lives, see hearts that are out of line with your kingdom. And then we surrender to you, we submit to you, we beg of you to transform us into the full likeness. That potential is already in there, but you're melding us into the full image of the Christ within us. So continue that work, God. Shape us, mold us, forgive us, love us. Help us to have identities rooted in the person of who you are. And then give us strength and power, both as a community and as individuals, to represent you with power in the world, to do so with courage, to do so with conviction, to do so with humility, because it's not because we're better than anybody else. We know we're walking wounded, but we are loved, and we love you, and we know you love justice. And so we join you in your works in the world. Reveal yourself to us, we pray, God. In this time of worship, strengthen us, we pray in your name. Amen. Can we stand together for a closing benediction? We're just saying about remembering who God is. And so we'll just simply sit in this verse again, Psalm 11, verse 7, a great verse for all of us to memorize. This will be our closing benediction. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. And all God's people said, amen. Love you all.
Shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? 